You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to our next episode of Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm thrilled today to be bringing you an episode on scenario design. Uh, This is something we do a lot in simulation. We write scenarios, we hope they work. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So we're fortunate today to have not only my longtime podcasting buddy, Jesse Spur, but also a fantastic guest, Kyla Carners, to join us in discussing this topic. How are you, Jesse? I'm really good. I'm really excited to be doing this topic, actually. Yeah, I agree. It's one that uh, we think we do all right, but maybe we can refine a little bit. And Kyla, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm very excited to be on this podcast episode. That's fantastic. Now, for people who don't know Kyla, she is one of the architects and editors-in-chief of EM Sim Cases, which is a FOMED resource on scenario design, but also lots of example scenarios. So Kyla's an emergency physician in Hamilton, Ontario, which is in Canada for those who don't live there. She's also the simulation director for their residency program, connected with McMaster University. And as I said, her other main interest is in maintaining and creating and supporting this blog. So uh, lots of expertise in scenario design, Kyla. Maybe let's just sort of, even before we get into the whole idea of how we go about writing them, Kyla, can you tell us what do you think makes a great simulation scenario? Yeah. Um, At the risk of sounding like a total med-ed purist, (laughs) um, I think that a great scenario is one that meets its objectives really, really well. You know, it's easy when you're writing sim cases or when you're taking part in a sim case as a learner. Um, It's really easy to get excited about those crazy cases. Like we have one that's a two-patient trauma case um, where the team simultaneously has to manage a can't intubate, can't ventilate patient and a blunt trauma VSA patient. Those ones are sexy and seem interesting and you think like those must be the most fun to write or are the best scenarios. But I also really like one of our really simple ones that we have a junior case that's about um, just working through the approach to an altered patient. Um, So it's just an elderly gentleman found on the floor. You don't know why he's um, altered. You don't know what happened. He can't tell you any story. the learners at the end feel like they've missed something because they don't come up with a diagnosis. Um, But then when you talk through and show them that they looked for X, Y, and Z, and they started antibiotics, and they fixed the blood pressure, and they intubated, and they've done all these fantastic things, and that was the point, is to show them that they have an approach to an altered patient, they come away being like, wow, I know a lot as a junior learner. That's really cool. And then I feel like that case fills its objectives as well. And so... I don't know, I guess it kind of depends on what you're looking for. But to me, so long as the case meets its objectives, it can be a really good case. Yeah, and I think if people take nothing else away from that episode, that's a fantastic point. Uh, Know what it is that you're trying to achieve. And then just as you say, the simpler, the better in terms of achieving that point. And I suppose that's particularly pertinent now when we're seeing simulation used for education, for quality improvement activities, and when it's delivered in different contexts with mannequins, with SPs, and sometimes in situ and sometimes in a skills lab. Uh, While we're on this really critical point, Jesse, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later on, but uh, yeah, the idea about learning objectives, particularly for in situ versus sim lab, that's probably a discipline we need as well. 
Yeah, uh, I think that that teases out the fact that, that I, I think of um, in Saichi Sim as you've got two sets of parallel learning objectives happening, the educational um, and then your ergonomic system process interrogation objectives as well. So d there's that um, different layer of, of scenario design in that place as well that you may not have if you're designing an off-site um, sim in a, a, for a sim lab focus. So uh, happy to dive into that a bit later too. Yeah, all right. So there's point number one. Know what it is you're trying to achieve and have the discipline to actually write it down and, and keep focused on it. All right, Kyla. So with this in mind, we've decided what we're going to do. And I guess most of our discussion will be about educational learning objectives. Um, how do you approach starting and writing a scenario? Um, it sort of depends. So sometimes I want to write a scenario after I've had a really great case. Um, in particular, when I was in training, um, there were many cases that would come up where I just think like, oh, there were so many things I could have done better or so many things that I learned about this crazy case or this very generic boring case, but where things went wrong. Um, and so sometimes that just triggered wanting to write something or down the line when I'm trying to think of an example of something, I might think back to a case I've had. Um, but especially when I was designing our sim curriculum at McMaster, um, we sort of started from scratch because when I was a resident, we actually didn't have any simulation education. Um, and so I sort of had to invent the wheel a little. Um, and so part of that was really trying to figure out what we needed as residents and building cases around that. Um, and that's where it gets really hard because you brainstorm and you think, oh, okay, I want a case about this and a case about this and a case about that. And then you sort of have to take a step back and say, well, why do I want a case about X, Y, or Z? So I got to the point where I decided, for example, after asking all of our residents with a needs assessment what they wanted, um, that I wanted some cases that were... Um, rare causes of common presentations. Um, the learners had sort of wanted to express that they wanted the chance to get to, you know, the end of the algorithm, so to speak. So I decided that this was a great way to teach the algorithm and expose learners to cases that they may never see in their training. Um, so in one of those cases, um, I did, for example, that we have one on a hyponatremic seizure. So I've never seen a hyponatremic seizure. I think it's a great thing to know how to manage and to know how to work through the, the end stages of that. Um, and so basically I built the case off of the many little elderly old ladies I've seen who are um, delirious, plus off of what a patient in status epilepticus, who we've all managed many times, is like, um, and sort of tried to merge that into something that seemed realistic trying to focus on those objectives. So it can get kind of messy when you're designing a case, especially when you don't actually have any experience yourself in managing that. Yeah, and I think what you say is really important because often when we're writing a case, of course, we're not really just writing it in isolation. You've brought up nicely how we put together a series of cases to meet a curriculum need or a program need. And I think what you say is also important because it's not as simple as translating our college curriculum or university curriculum and saying now write cases in there because, as you say, sometimes the rare and important might be something that we can only do in simulation. And, of course, many parts of those curricula just don't lend themselves to simulation. So it's almost like there is this uneasy matrix kind of fit uh, Jesse, you might have a comment on that too, because obviously Kyla and I are talking particularly about emergency medicine trainees, but uh, pretty much the same, I think, for interprofessional teams and nursing education. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, arguably more so when there's a, a single profession that's actually writing the scenario, So, but it's intended for an interprofessional team. So you've got the potential for kind of case ambiguity and mashing and stuff, but also um, a potential for lack of awareness of building in the task relevant cues and the and the actual uh, required actions for the other professions that might be involved in the scenario so you're often i've been in this situation a number of times um when i was working in a simulation center as a sim educator where you're presented with a case for an intended interprofessional or multidisciplinary simulation and it's i, I want to run a case on um on x clinical condition and that's that's it so it's starting starting from that point and then um, going, well, I'm going to need to work with you a little on this because I need to understand what um, each member of the team wants to do, what you want each member of the team doing to actually get to that learning objective. Yeah, super important. I think when so much of our simulation, we're really trying to make interprofessional, it's an easy way to get people disaffected. Uh, Kyla, well, just while we're on this point about uh, balancing what it is you're trying to achieve. The other thing, as you say, you take your inspiration from the real cases. How do you balance doing stuff that people need with stuff that they might find fun and interesting? Yeah, it's, <laughs> you should ask my learners, <laughs> see what they think. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's hard, right? Because part of the reason that people don't like this altered level of consciousness patient I'm talking about is that it's kind of boring. Like <laughs> there's nothing extremely sexy about the case, um, but it fulfills some really important objectives. And you realize talking to the learners after that they've never thought about their approach to an altered level of consciousness patient. And it's really important to have one when you work in emergency medicine. Um, and so sometimes it really is, again, trying to look at what is the purpose of this case and what am I trying to accomplish rather than worrying so much about whether you're entertaining the learners, so to speak, they're always going to be engaged on some level. If your case is good enough and is still challenging for them, but they just might not walk away from it thinking like that was the coolest case ever. And that's okay. So long as they've learned something. Now it's different if you're trying to make a case about something that's completely not teachable by simulation, right? Like <laughs> there are some things that you try and they just really don't fly because they're things that you need to, I don't know, they're so rare that you need to pick a consultant's brain about it. And in reality, you would never start treatments for something without talking to four people. And in some ways that's not really amenable to simulation, even though we think that rare things are best taught by sim. Sometimes they're not, right? They're just that tidbit from a textbook that you need to know and learn and know that you need to call a consultant at some point. And that gets a little bit lost in sim sometimes. Yeah, and I think that's particularly important when we have to be so realistic about the limitations of the diagnostic cues that we can often send in simulation, particularly if we're using mannequins and cases that rest a lot on making a diagnosis, unless that diagnosis is with ECGs or things that are easily able to be manifested using SIM, I think you're right. I remember once uh, a colleague of mine writing this fabulous aortic dissection case simply because the mannequin could have differential pulses. And of course, it wasn't a great scenario because once you discovered that the patient had differential blood pressures, the rest of the scenario was basically waiting for the CT angiogram and that's not a great case. 
the Delphi study work that um, Chris Hicks and Andrew Petrosniak did around establishing the the stressors for the stress inoculation training program um, that that they run at St Mike's is um, diagnostic ambiguity was one of the highest rated. Um, stressors as well so being really conscious that we can unintentionally with some uh, with some uh, ambiguous or misleading cues really pile on the stress in a simulation that's not intended to be um, for stress purposes yeah not functional stress not good learning stress yeah Uh, and we might um, post the link to that jesse because i agree that's a really uh, interesting perspective on that Well, Kyla, let's get back to some bread and butter and let's just take the example of a specific case you might be writing, let's say like the status epilepticus, and just talk us through the steps. Uh, Where do you start? How do you put it together? And uh, how do you know it's going to work? Yeah, so generally speaking, the first place that I start when writing a case um, is the objectives. So usually I actually have kind of an idea of what the... We tend to do a couple of cases a day when we're doing cases for our curriculum. Um, Obviously, when we're doing cases for EMs and cases, many of them are sent to me and many of them were written for our curriculum and are then published on EMs and cases. Um, But so, for example, if I'm writing for the curriculum, then the theme for the day might be, for example, rare causes of common conditions, like with that seizure case. And so then you start trying to flush out, well, what are my objectives? Why do I want them to see a rare cause of a seizure? Okay, well, part of that is that I want them to work through the algorithm of how you manage a seizure. So I want them to go through recognizing status and the need for intubation. I want them to go through the usual protocol of various medications that you need to give and recognizing that they're not working. Okay, and then I want to expose them to the idea that you actually need to give hypertonic saline for a patient with a hyponatremic seizure. That seems kind of scary. We've never done that before. That's great. Let's introduce that in an environment where you can practice it. So then knowing that, I sort of go backwards from the objectives and try to skeleton together a rough framework of, okay, so if the patient comes in, maybe first she's confused, you get a bit of background. Okay, when does she first seize? And then I try to look at, well, where do I want them to get in the end? And then work backwards to figure out some of the key steps. And then from there, try to decide, well, how do I get from A to B? What will trigger that? Okay, well, what if they don't recognize this? How do I modify things? Is there a nurse there who's a lifesaver who hints to the residents? Is there a family member that shows up and says, why aren't you doing something? Um, And sort of try to work through the details in that way. And if I get stuck, then I often have to force myself to go back to the objectives and say, no, no, you're getting lost in some side thing. What's the purpose of this? Um, And sort of reframe it and keep recycling until the case sort of meets what it needs to meet. Okay, so this is a fairly important uh, point. So you're saying you identify what these scenario states are. That's one way that people describe it of, you know, here's how things start, here's what changes, here's where you want to be in a resolution. And having decided on what's going to be happening in each of those states, then you work on the transition processes and whether they're triggers or cues from you and then obviously the things that you expect the participants to do in each of these states. Is that a fair kind of summary? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, and then as you're, you know, we're talking about 
this conceptually and so do you write that as a little uh, segment and, and in those columns of what's going to be happening and what you expect people to do and what will be the triggers? Yeah, often I start out with something that's um, even just a rough sketch on a sheet of loose leaf, sort of as a, okay, I'm starting way up top here, and then there might be an arrow that leads somewhere, and then another arrow that leads back, because usually I'm moving things around and trying to sort them out. Once I'm happy with a really rough architecture, then I'll start putting it into the template that we use for our cases. Um, and that's when I start to realize like, oh, I don't have a way to get from A to B. <laughs> or for example, if I'm editing a case and trying to transcribe it over to our template, the same thing often happens where I'll look at like, oh, there's these three different states, but I don't quite understand how you're getting from A to B. Let me figure out how I can cue the learners to get there. Or maybe these don't need to be different states. Um, and sort of work through things that way. And then you can kind of backfill and create all of the color in the case, which is the fun part. All right, so let's um, talk about templates because I think you bring up a really good point. The template has the opportunity to prompt uh, almost like a checklist for things that you've forgotten or things that are missing. Uh, you sound like you're happy with your template now. Has that taken a little bit of uh, refining? Um, it has, and I think there are still things that we could improve on our template. Um, initially, we didn't really have a spot where we included um, how many people you needed to help you run the case, which sounds really obvious. <laughs> it wasn't a spot on our template. And so we've just started adding it from a, well, how many hands do you need? Some of our cases have two patients at once, and we've realized they both need a confederate beside them. So, you know, now you're talking about you need two Confederate nurses and then do you need Simtex and how many instructors do you need watching? If you have a two patient case, we've figured out that we need two plus someone coordinating. That's a big case. You need to let someone know that if they're going to run that, they need a good, you know, six, seven people there to run a case for all of four or five learners. <laughs> That's a little crazy. Um, so we added that. Um, another thing that I think is missing, speaking of, I know we're going to talk about standardized patients, um, is a little bit more of a um, script part, both for if we have confederates who are taking part in a case. I think that we're missing, um, a confederate can certainly see or put together what they're supposed to do in a case based on our template, um, but I think it would be great for us to have an extra piece to say, okay, if you are the Confederate bedside nurse, here is what you need to do. Here's the information you can provide. Here's when you're supposed to prompt the learners and make it sort of designed specifically for that person. I know that the group at Queens does that very well. Um, I think that's something that we are missing. Yeah, so I think uh, just to sort of labor this point a little bit about templates because I've seen many variations and people seem more or less happy with their own. So in the first of a few plugs we'll do for EM Sim cases, there's a template there. So that's emsimcases.com. But also there's plenty of other uh websites, resources, groups who are very happy to share their templates. But I think what you're saying is important. It's obviously got the scenario flow and the states you're talking about, but then you've got all these pieces on the side about what resources do you need to deliver. It's often where you articulate your learning objectives. It might be where you document your expected debrief points, uh, including things like also what equipment you're going to need. Uh, as well as those human resources. Uh, I might go to you on this, Jesse, as well. Uh, you've probably had a number of different scenario templates in your time. You've ever found a perfect one? Not perfect, but always evolving, I guess. Um, we've we've ended up with one that I'm quite happy with from an in situ sim point of view that's evolved over the um, 
last three years or so of us running the Insightu Sim Workshop at SMAC. That's been kind of collaboratively worked on by the faculty, taken some bits and pieces from workshopping it during the workshop with participants. And some of the, I guess, quirky additional things that I hadn't thought of is having um, uh, cancellation criteria written. In, this is for purposely for an Insightu context, but having um, hard cancellation criteria written into the scenario um, takes a lot of the ambiguity out of, oh, should we still run it? The department's busy um, and also gives you something to really include into the pre-brief of who has the go-no-go criteria um, sign-off. Um, and the other one is um, risk control. So are we taking, um, are we using real drugs? Are we using uh, electricity? Are we, uh, uh, so actually having that written in there and again, just to help with the pre-brief component and also just things to be conscious of when you're setting up and packing up from the sim as well. Yeah, that's a nice reminder of some of those safety concepts that we talked about uh, with Anne Mullen in our last episode. So uh, good points, Jesse, and we might share that one in the blog post as well. So, uh, and I guess I would just add, I think it also depends on who you're writing scenarios for uh, at our place. We do have different templates for different areas because we did find that, for instance, anesthesia has some very specific requirements that ends up making the template quite detailed and laborious that uh, we find difficult to do, but unfortunately necessary if you're running some of their scenarios because they have that high technical element. Whereas we have a lower complexity template for our ED cases that we find allows us to focus on the points we want to focus on. So I think there is no perfect one, that's for sure. Uh, and it will depend on people getting used to using it and it will improve with refinement. Totally agree with that point as well. So Kyla, uh, can I ask you also, one of the things that I always find really challenging and difficult is getting stuff like the x-rays and the blood tests and the ECGs together. Do you tend to model it on real cases or do you go to image banks? Where do you find those sorts of uh, prompt cues or supporting objects as some people call them? Um, so I have to say, particularly for things that are published on our blog, um, I'm hesitant to use any images that I would get from real patients without the patient's consent. And so most of our x-rays that are used on the blog uh, do come from other FOMED sources. So we'll look to sort of Dr. Google, see what we can find and then see where we can give it credit to. Um, we are lucky that most of our ultrasound images actually come from our um, focused competency in ultrasound program uh, that we offer at McMaster. And they have a phenomenal uh, database of obviously anonymized ultrasound images that they can give us, um, which is a great resource. Um, for ECGs, there's also obviously fantastic sources online like lifeinthefastlane.com is one of my favorite to use. Um, it is laborious and it's a lot of work trying to find new images, um, but that is what I use for the most part. Um, the labs, I often make them up and I've even gone so far as to make fake patient charts on our, you know, charting pieces of paper that we use for some of our local cases. You know, if it's you're called to the ward for a chest pain case, then I'll, I literally have one where I've written a like fake admission note that the learners have to turn to and figure out what the patient is there for and what medications that they're on. But yes, I wish I had an answer to where you find <laughs> images and ECGs more easily because that takes so much time. 
Yeah, no, I think it's a challenge for everybody. You've mentioned many of the sources that uh, I go to as well. And for x-rays, Radiopedia is also hard to go past and they've also got good Creative Commons licences to use those things as well. You're listening to Simulcast. Obviously, we've written our scenario. We think we've got it beautifully set out in this template. We often would like to get a bit of an idea if it's going to work before we use it for the first time. Uh, Kyla, how do you both peer review and or test your scenarios before you run them? So the nice thing about the cases that we receive for peer review is that for the most part, they've already been run somewhere else. So usually (laughs) the person who is submitting them has already test piloted them on a group of learners somewhere. Um, And so we know that in theory it works somewhere um, and that they've tried to work out the kinks. Now it's interesting because sometimes you really do look at the cases you get and think, I don't understand how you ran this. <laughs> like, I can't follow what what you've written, um, which I think is also just part of having a great template that makes it easy to pick up a case and know what exactly was involved. Um, and so that's sort of the first step of how things are tested for EMSIM cases. The peer review part we do kind of separately. Um, and so to us, the peer review serves a few purposes. I ask the, um, we have each case is looked at by two separate uh, people for peer review. And they are all um, practicing physicians um, who have some experience with simulation. And so they look at the cases sort of asking for one, are the objectives clear? Um, Two, they ask, does the case make sense in its flow? So can I follow what's happening when I read this? Um, Three, they ask, um, is the medical content sound? Um, Which is often where we have the most debates about how things work. And then number four, they ask, um, does the case meet its objectives? So it's one thing to have the objectives, but does the case actually meet them? Um, And sometimes we have some debate around how best to do that as well. So we consider those sort of two separate processes. Um, In terms of locally, how I um, pilot test um, any cases that we run, If I'm lucky enough to have the resources from the sim lab, they're really great about pilot testing cases for me. And so our sim techs are phenomenal and they'll go through and say, "Uh, actually this vital sign doesn't match with that on the mannequin, we can only program such and such. If I don't have them working with me, um, then oftentimes we will (laughs) struggle through with our learners and learn from experience to rapid cycle, make it better for the next set of learners. Yeah, and I think, um, and and, you know, it's not really a dichotomy. It's not like a case works or doesn't work. Usually it works okay, but there's things we want to improve next time. So I think that iterative approach is probably what most people do. Jesse, you might want to comment on this yeah, I think um, that's the where the power in numbers of getting a few different heads to look at the scenario and, and just uh, almost do a desktop walkthrough of it can can help. And I always um, get a couple of people that are going to be big stakeholders in running the scenario to to kind of just tread out, come and look at the area that we've proposed to run it in, look at where we'd put it, uh, where we'd um, put any purposefully put equipment that um, wouldn't usually be there. Um, and, and even down to cons- considering how we're going to get the um, learners from the sim site, so- where we're actually running the sim to where we're going to debrief. Um, the other thing that, Kyla, you touched on that um, is just so invaluable is getting a sim co or sim tech who runs lots of different simulations, um, often mannequin based to have a look through the scenario and go, yeah, we've run something similar to this and it just always falls down at this point. So having that technical um, driver of the 
mannequin for one of a better term have a good good look at it and you just develop a intuition for what's going to work yeah i think that's uh, very good advice all right so just to kind of recap i suppose on some of the elements that kyle has been talking about here be really clear on what we're trying to achieve whether that's learning objectives or other goals for the cases have those phases or states of the simulation clear in our heads think about the triggers and the expected actions that sort of move people from one state to another. Think about the resources uh, such as ECGs, x-rays, and then consider how we kind of test and review the case before we get into it. It's probably a good point, Kyla, to make mention of this magnificent website that you have, EM Sim Cases. Uh, and I'm interested to know because this website, there's heaps of cases there. Obviously, they're very emergency medicine focused and probably more medical focused. But at the same time, a big array and diversity of cases that you offer everybody for free. So what was the motivation behind this and uh, how do you keep it going? How I keep it going is a daily struggle. No. <laughs> um, so the motivation behind it was actually when we were creating our SIM curriculum at McMaster, um, which I did as part of a project during residency, sort of when we got things off the ground running. Um, I was put in contact with another, at the time, resident who was at McGill. His name is Martin Kuskney, um, and he's the co-creator and co-editor-in-chief with me uh, for EM Sim Cases. Um, and we were both sort of struggling through this process of writing cases for a de novo curriculum for our programs. And it struck us both as a little bit odd that, in particular at Mac, we were really behind the eight ball compared to other programs. Um, it was odd that we didn't have any simulation. And... It was a little bit strange for me that as trying to write this all from scratch, that I needed to start from scratch, right? If the rest of the country and most of the world was already using simulation to help in their teaching, how come I have to go and create a new anaphylaxis case and a new case on a hyponatremic seizure and a new case to practice with an altered level of consciousness patient? Why do I need to create new trauma cases? Um, and it was interesting to me that a lot of people, I think, once they, they spend so much time making a simulation case, that I think they feel a little bit protective um, of them. And I can understand why that happens, right? It's, it's sort of your baby, you want to take credit for it. Um, maybe it's based on a personal patient experience you have, so you feel really connected to it. Um, but it just sort of struck Martin and I that we would all be able to have so much more time to be educators and to create more good for the educational system if everyone who worked in emergency medicine education just shared their cases with each other. Because we're probably reinventing the wheel, right? I'm sure most people have an end-stage COPD case. We probably all don't need to rewrite that case. Instead, it would be great if we could share them and then we could all work on writing cases that the other person doesn't have. And so then when Martin and I were looking, we didn't find any, we found other databases, um, but they were sort of inconsistent in what they contained. Um, they had a variety of templates and ways, shapes, and forms that the cases were um, published in, so it was hard to sort of figure out what you were dealing with each time. Um, and they weren't consistently peer-reviewed. And so we decided that we could pool our resources and our friends <laughs> and our shared and share our work um, and put that out there so that other people don't have to struggle to start from scratch like we did. Um, and now it's starting to come full circle so that we're 
getting submissions for cases that other people have written um, that they want to share with the world. And we're getting schools that are sharing their entire curriculum. Um, and so we can kind of pick through and say, here's something we haven't done, here's something that hasn't been published, here's something that hasn't been published, and get it converted over to our template. And um, it's becoming a really rich experience. Yes, and uh, we're all the beneficiaries of it. So again, that link for people that might want to go and have a look, it's emsimcases.com. And if you go there, it's set out beautifully. It describes who are the people involved, and then the cases are listed according to uh, categories like cardiology, endocrine, neurology, OBGYN, pediatrics. Again, very intuitive and the templates there. And I think what you're saying is people are obviously very free to use any of the cases that you've got up there, but also that you are encouraging people to submit cases in the spirit of uh, sharing with other programs. Is that fair to say? They just uh, can submit them in via the contacts that you've got there. Yes, absolutely. We'd be happy to receive cases. Um, we're always looking for cases. In a way, it's kind of a, a nice way to have someone peer review and curate a case that, that you've sort of designed and want to see will this fly, as we can kind of work with you to, to make the case even more phenomenal and uh, share it with the world. Yeah, unsurprisingly, uh, deliberate practice and feedback works for writing simulation cases as well. All right, well, we might uh, start to wrap up here. And first of all, I might go to you, Jesse. Um, take home points or tips for the listeners or anything else that you wanted to add? I think um, finishing with that that fairly rigorous peer review thing is that this is another avenue for scholarship 2.0 in um, in our work days. We're, we're creating a lot of this stuff and actually don't share it and don't get a, a lot of output from it. So um, I, I'd really encourage people to consider it as another form of, I, I guess, scholarship that you're, you're submitting to a, a peer review process and that think outside just the journals. Yeah, that's a really nice frame to put around that, Jesse. Uh, thank you for that. All right, Kyla. Well, it's been fantastic to have you. Lots of good practical advice, a few philosophical thoughts as well. Uh, what final take-home points would you like our listeners to leave with? Have a purpose for any simulation that you're doing beyond just doing simulation. So have a goal and have objectives um, that you want to accomplish with any case that you do. Don't be afraid of starting when things aren't perfect. Don't be afraid of asking your friends for help. Don't be afraid of having people look over your cases and make sure they make sense. It's also a great way to get people interested in helping you with simulation. And yeah, use our cases, use our template, um, send cases to us. Um, the more we share, I think the better that we make global education in emergency medicine. Excellent. Music to our ears. Well, Kyla, thanks very much again for your time. Thank you, Jesse. And uh, this is us signing off from Simulcast, another episode. Farewell. Simulcast. Simulcast.